Welcome to the Law with DK Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 45. We're going to talk about Gamble versus the United States. This is another 2019 case. This was decided less than two months ago on June 17th of 2019. And this case asks, can you be tried criminally for the exact same conduct twice in the United States of America? You might say perfectly reasonably. Of course not, Dave. Everybody knows the double jeopardy clause, right? They even made a movie about it in 1999, starring Ashley Judd and Tommy Lee Jones. That movie was aptly enough called Double Jeopardy. It's right there in the Fifth Amendment, Dave. Quote, no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Perfectly reasonable suggestion. And of course, you know, we go right to the source here in the law, and that's exactly what the Constitution does say. No person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Which is kind of odd, isn't it, when you think about it? Jeopardy of life. You can't be put in jeopardy of life more than once for the same offense. Now, you could read that to mean only the death penalty cases, right? Deprive you of life. Now, putting you in jail for 10 years doesn't kill you, right? It doesn't deprive you of your actual life. You're still alive. But it does deprive you of your ability to live, at least to live freely, And I've not specifically studied this. Why didn't they say liberty here? Why didn't they say you can't be deprived of your liberty? I don't know. If you're incarcerated, you clearly have been deprived of your liberty. I mean, you can't say, hey, honey, I'm running down to the store to pick up some bread. I'll be right back. Your liberty to do that has been deprived. You have been denied it. But then it says you can't be deprived of life or limb. What, again, I have not specifically studied this, but I don't think we ever cut off limbs for a criminal violation. Now, colonials used to do things like put you on a whipping post, put you in dunking chairs, use stocks and pillories, but they didn't cut off hands or arms or legs to my knowledge. So why does the Fifth Amendment say you can't be put twice in jeopardy of life or limb? That seems to imply you can be put in jeopardy of a limb once, but not twice. Now I get into these cases and I look at this pertinent language, which we should always do, go to the source and all other kinds of questions come up. I have to look further into this whole limb thing and this whole life thing for that matter. But today we're discussing and focusing on the double jeopardy part of the Fifth Amendment, not the limb part. So back to the double jeopardy part of it. You can't be criminally tried for the exact same conduct twice, right? Well, you can. In this case, Gamble versus the United States tells us how and why. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and the other Speakeasy Ideas podcast through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. Follow this podcast on social media, which is Twitter at The Law, D.K.W., and the Facebook page is The Law with D.K. Williams. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're so inclined, like, review, comment, subscribe, and share. Now, before we jump into the meat of this Gamble v. U.S. case and Double Jeopardy, let me mention quickly a circuit court case that you might have heard about this past week. The Second Circuit, and again, circuit courts are between the federal trial courts and the United States Supreme Court, so they're the first level of appeal, and the Second Circuit covers New York. The Second Circuit, just this past week, reinstated Sarah Palin's defamation suit against the New York Times. The trial court had dismissed it. The appeals court just said, no, you can't dismiss it. It's going to continue. She sued them way back shortly after they ran an opinion piece claiming a direct tie between a Palin PAC, a political action committee, a brochure that this Palin committee sent out, 
and the shooting of Gabby Giffords and several other people. So the New York Times said there was a direct tie between that brochure and the shooting. The trial court tossed it out on failure to state a claim grounds. The Second Circuit said that was wrong, and it's all about boring procedural issues, not for any real juicy substantive First Amendment issues. But the bottom line is the case goes back to the trial court, and we'll continue there. We'll keep you posted. That type of news is a good reason to follow us on Twitter, at the Law DKW or on Facebook, because as soon as we hear about something like that, we'll tweet the news, and then we might talk about it more in depth here on the podcast. So who are the named participants? How do we get here in this Gamble case? Well, Terrence Martez Gamble was a resident of Alabama, and he got into some criminal trouble. He was a convicted felon. That's not in dispute. So as a convicted felon, you know, he's done his time, but he's out. He was then found to be in possession of a gun in a 2015 traffic stop, which was illegal under both Alabama state and federal laws because he's a felon. He was convicted under the Alabama state law and given a one-year sentence. He was also prosecuted under federal laws. And after he made his argument that, hey, you can't do that because of double jeopardy, the federal district court rejected that argument, and so does the Supreme Court here, and we'll get into that. So he lost at the federal court trial level on his argument that they couldn't do this at all. And once he lost that argument, he pled guilty because that was the basis of his whole argument. I've already been convicted of this very exact same thing in Alabama. You can't do it again. Well, he lost that. And he got a 46-month sentence in federal court. So Alabama sentenced him for one year, 12 months. The Fed sentenced him to 46 months, which is almost four years, right? And state courts are different in like the amount of time you have to actually serve of your sentence. It's not uncommon to have like a day-for-day day good time, they call it. So if you get 10 years and you don't get into any trouble, you'll actually do five. So that gives people an incentive to act within the rules. Because if you don't act within the rules, you get another day, in essence. Well, in federal court, you basically have to do 85% of your time at the minimum. So you can see the difference here between the Alabama state sentence and the federal court sentence. Four times as much. And even more than that, as far as actual time probably goes. So Gamble appealed to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, who affirmed the district court's decision based on precedent, and the Supreme Court affirmed And I think they rightly affirmed on the basis of this dual sovereignty doctrine. But we'll get into what some of the problems are. So Gamble's one name party. The other name party is the United States of America. You're familiar with them. So this doctrine of dual sovereignty meant Gamble could be punished twice for the exact same conduct, possessing a firearm, because the state of Alabama and the United States are different sovereigns. And the Fifth Amendment says you can't be tried for the same offense not the same act, and each sovereign makes its own laws defining offenses. They each, each of these sovereigns, according to the 7-2 Supreme Court opinion that we're talking about, have their own separate interests to protect. And we'll get into the meat of that. And this was a 7-2 case, and it was not split along any type of what we normally think of as traditional philosophical lines. The seven-person majority opinion was written by Samuel Alito, and he upheld Gamble's federal conviction because of this doctrine of dual sovereignty. It means that two convictions for the exact same thing do not violate the double jeopardy protection of the Fifth Amendment. So Alito wrote it, and he was joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, Clarence Thomas, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Brett Kavanaugh. So you can see that's some widely different judicial philosophies all agreeing. And the two dissents, who each wrote a separate dissenting opinion, were Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Neil Gorsuch. So you can see the two that dissented are not usually on the same philosophical side of things. Clarence Thomas also wrote a separate concurrence, which makes what I think is the most important point of this whole exercise, and we'll get into that. Now, as a human being, not as a lawyer, 
not as a Supreme Court justice, but just as a regular old human being, who would argue that someone should be punished twice for the exact same thing? It's constitutional. That's what the Supreme Court held, and I agree with them. But why do it? Just because it's constitutional doesn't mean it's a good idea. Prosecutors are in the executive branch. They decide what cases to prosecute. They have a tremendous amount of discretion. What kind of person uses that discretion in this way? I submit a pretty bad one. And this ties back into one of my recurring points. Just because something is constitutional doesn't mean it's a good idea. It doesn't mean it's good policy. And I've seen state legislators during public testimony, specifically about civil asset forfeiture, and why this idea that it's constitutional means you should do it is a horrible idea. So this state legislator asked if civil asset forfeiture was constitutional. When he was told yes, which is another discussion for another time, when somebody told him yes, somebody from the attorney general's office told him yes, it's constitutional, that was all he needed to know. He didn't need to know anything else. If it was constitutional, he was okay with doing it, which is a horrendous way to govern. I mean, it's constitutional after the 16th Amendment to pass a 99% income tax. Completely constitutional. That doesn't mean the government should do it. It doesn't mean it's a good idea because it's a bad idea. The government shouldn't do it, but it's constitutional. People confuse these things. Like if it's constitutional, we should do it. No. Constitution just says some things you cannot do. It doesn't mean you should go all the way up to the complete limit of what the, what the Constitution authorizes. So the Constitution authorizes this dual sovereignty doctrine that applied to gamble. But does that mean they should have done it? No, it doesn't. So just because punishing gamble twice for the exact same thing, possession of a gun, just because it's constitutional doesn't make it moral. It doesn't make it a good idea. It does not make it wise policy. But all the Supreme Court can do, all it's supposed to do in a case like this, is rule on the constitutionality of it. And that's what they do in this case. So on Gamble's appeal, he acknowledges that the prior Supreme Court cases are against him. They've recognized this dual sovereignty doctrine. So this case is, again, largely about stare decisis. And that's the Latin word that we talked about before, or Latin phrase. That means it's been decided, in essence. So if it's been decided, we're not going to overturn it. Stare decisis is two words, S-T. A-R-E for star A, decisis, D-E-C-I-S-I-S. So Gamble's arguing that the Supreme Court should overturn the precedent. So star A decisis is like in last week's case, which was episode 44, when we talked about the California Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt, this precedent and the adherence to precedent, star A decisis, is an issue the Supreme Court has to address here in Gamble's case. But this time, unlike in Hyatt's case, the Supreme Court does not overrule the precedent. So what does the Supreme Court say? Alito, for the majority, wrote, We consider in this case whether to overrule a long-standing interpretation of the double jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment. That clause provides no person may be twice put in jeopardy for the same offense. Alito goes on, Our double jeopardy case law is complex, but at its core, the clause means that those acquitted or convicted of a particular offense cannot be tried a second time for the same offense. But what does the clause mean by an offense. <laughs> and the definition of offense with a C, that's the way it is in the Constitution, is what this entire thing turns on. The court says, Alito for the majority, we have long held that a crime under one sovereign's law is not the same offense as a crime under the laws of another sovereign. Under this dual sovereignty doctrine, a state may prosecute a defendant under state law, even if the federal government has prosecuted him for the same conduct under a federal statute. Or like in this case, the opposite. The state prosecuted him, and then for some bizarre reason, the feds think they don't have enough to do. So they punish the guy again for the exact same thing. Back to the court. Attacking this second prosecution on double jeopardy grounds, Gamble asks us to overrule the dual sovereignty doctrine. 
He contends that it departs from the founding era understanding of the right enshrined by the Double Jeopardy Clause. But the historical evidence assembled by Gamble is feeble, according to the court. Pointing the other way are the clause's text, other historical evidence, and 170 years of precedent. Today, we affirm that precedent and with it, the decision below. So Gamble stays convicted twice for the same thing. So here's some more details about what happened to Gamble specifically. In November 2015, and this is from the opinion, a local police officer in Mobile, Alabama, and as an aside, I lived in Mobile from the third grade to the sixth grade. So the local police officer in Mobile pulled Gamble over for a damaged headlight. Smelling marijuana, the officer searched Gamble's car, where he found a loaded 9mm handgun. Since Gamble had been convicted of second-degree robbery, his possession of the handgun violated an Alabama law providing that no one convicted of a crime of violence shall own a firearm or have one in his or her possession. So Gamble, let's be blunt, Gamble was a dumbass. He wasn't very smart to have a gun and weed in his car, assuming that he did have the weed, he had the gun, assuming he had the weed, because there are numerous documented cases where police imagine they smell weed where none exists. So he had a gun, apparently had weed in his car, or had smelled of it. He had been smoking it, apparently. And he had a broken light on his car. He knows he's a felon. So all that's on him. We're not saying what he did, he was, he's innocent. He's not. He broke this Alabama law. But in this instance, he wasn't harming anyone. He wasn't even pulled over for a moving violation. He was pulled over for a broken light. He wasn't charged with driving under the influence. At least that's not mentioned in the case. He wasn't using the gun. He was just in possession of a gun. He was zero threat to anybody at that time. Is it really in the interest of society to punish this guy for this twice? I submit it's not. It's outrageous. But as you all know, I, I get the difference, and you guys get the difference, between something being a horrible idea and it being unconstitutional. They're not synonymous like we were talking about. So what happens to Gamble here is outrageous. It is unjust. It is immoral. But it's constitutional, at least as far as it goes regarding this dual sovereignty doctrine. But we're going to explore the other aspect of this charge, the federal charge as well. Back to the court's opinion, quoting, After Gamble pleaded guilty to the state offense, federal prosecutors indicted him for the same instance of possession under federal law, one forbidding those convicted of a crime to ship or transport in interstate or foreign commerce or possess in or affecting commerce any firearm or ammunition. And here is the real problem. This is me. How is Gamble affecting interstate commerce? He's not. To say otherwise is nonsense. And that's the source of the problem because that's exactly what the Supreme Court said in 1942 in Wickard v. Filburn, which we discussed in episode five of the law. So go back and check that one out for more in-depth discussion of that horrendous case. So if federal crimes were actually limited to Congress's legitimate constitutional authority, double jeopardy via this dual sovereignty doctrine would rarely be an issue. So many problems would be eliminated or at least minimized if Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, which enumerates the legitimate powers of Congress, if that was taken seriously and not blatantly ignored Gamble did not cross a state line. He did nothing interstate. He did not sell or attempt to sell or trade the firearm in any way. He did not engage or even affect interstate commerce. This federal statute under which he was convicted a second time for possession of a handgun is not a legitimate exercise of federal power. That is unconstitutional regardless of what the Supreme Court said in 1942 in Wickard. Wickard is not legitimate and the cases that expanded it are not either. So dual sovereignty constitutional. Punishing someone in federal court for possession of an object, not selling it, not transporting it, is illegitimate. And let's call that out. States have a legitimate interest in not allowing felons to possess a firearm. No problem. Whether or not it should be illegal, 
Another argument, but they have a legitimate interest. Federal government has no legitimate interest in that. No legitimate congressional authority in that. Only the state does. So let's get back to the opinion. Gamble moved to dismiss on one ground. The federal indictment was for the same offense as the one at issue in his state conviction and thus exposed him to double jeopardy. But because this court has long held that two offenses are not the same offense for double jeopardy purposes if prosecuted by different sovereigns. The offense here is carrying a gun. He did that once. In everyday language, that is one offense. If you tell one lie to two people at the exact same time, how many lies have you told? If you carry a weapon in violation of law, how many violations, offenses, have you committed? This is a case where the legal language and everyday language are not the same thing. Because again, if I tell one lie to two people, let's say we're in the car together. I'm in the car with two other people. I tell them one lie. That's not two lies. That's one lie even though it's the two different people. And another practical thing here in regards to gamble, it's, it's not unusual for a state court to bring charges, then transfer the prosecution to federal court if the U.S. attorney wants the case. This happens a lot in drug cases. But it's perfectly constitutional for the state to keep the case and let the U.S. attorney prosecute it according to this dual sovereignty doctrine. But is that a good use of government resources? trying one person twice for the same thing? Or should one of the sovereigns let the other one take care of it and use its limited resources to prosecute something else? It's almost like the federal government doesn't have enough to do in Gamble's case, so it does things another level, level of government has already done. Would it make sense for the state to pave a highway and then for the feds to come in and pave the same road on top of that same road that the state did? I think not. Yet that's good comparison. Even if it's constitutional, it's not smart. Which describes a lot of government, doesn't it? Gamble wasn't bright. He wasn't smart for carrying that gun. He knew what he was doing. But how bright is the government for repaving the street shortly after paving it? How bright is the government for charging this guy with the exact same thing they just charged him for at another level? Now, the Supreme Court doesn't make much of Gamble's arguments to overturn the precedent. They actually kind of make fun of it in a few places. The majority opinion, written by Alito, says, We start with the text of the Fifth Amendment. Although the dual sovereignty rule is often dubbed an exception to the double jeopardy right, it is not an exception at all. On the contrary, it follows from the text that defines that right in the first place. The language of the clause protects individuals from being twice put in jeopardy for the same offense, not for the same conduct or actions. Okay, is that a little too cute? Again, if someone burps at dinner in front of eight other people, has he committed eight offenses or has he just committed one offense that offended eight people? I think the latter is more applicable. But according to the Supreme Court, and legally, they're right. An act is one thing, an offense is something else. You can't be tried twice for the same offense, but you can be tried twice for the same act. But again, the ability to do it doesn't mean you should. Upholding the dual sovereign doctrine here is constitutionally correct. And I'm just pointing out what I see as a problem with the application of it with the executive branch using that doctrine. And the, the Supreme Court at one point quotes Scalia from an earlier opinion where Scalia wrote, if the same conduct violates two or more laws, then each offense may be separately prosecuted. Absolutely. But that's may be separately prosecuted, not shall be separately prosecuted. This is where a human being makes a decision. And that decision can and should be criticized when appropriate. So the court gets into some history. He's saying that Gamble is making one argument and they address it thusly. Quote, yet on Gamble's reading, the same founders who quite literally revolted against the use of acquittals abroad to bar criminal prosecutions here would soon give us an amendment, the Fifth Amendment, allowing foreign acquittals to spare domestic criminals. We doubt it. Okay. Again, I think the Supreme Court has come to the correct conclusion. I want to say something about this passage. The king used trials to let his minions get away with crimes 
So he would try them in the UK and acquit them. So he would do that so they couldn't be prosecuted in the colonies. That's not the same thing as being convicted twice. That's using an acquittal to avoid a prosecution. So the king not letting redcoats be punished at all is different complaint than not being able to punish them twice. And so we're back to Wickard and the federal government's usurpation of state sovereignty. There are dual sovereigns, but the two sovereigns should have separate interests according to the Constitution, yet that part of the Constitution has now been deleted. So that is the problem. And Gamble being subject to federal prosecution for possession of a gun inside one state with no commerce involved at all shows that perfectly. The Supreme Court in this case discusses how counterfeiting coins had been prosecuted twice for a long time, you know, once by the state where they're being passed and once by the feds. Now, counterfeiting actually violates or implicates one of the actual enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8. Congress is empowered to mint coins. So counterfeiting affects that power. And on the state level, you're committing fraud. You're getting something under false pretense. So that makes sense. But possessing a firearm intrastate does not because the federal government has no legitimate authority over purely intrastate activity, except for Wickard and the cases that followed, like Reich v. Gonzalez, which comes up a little bit later. We discussed that one in episode 30. And another example the Supreme Court mentions about this dual sovereignty is the assault of the United States Marshal. All right, a U.S. Marshal is a federal agent. I get that. But it's not comparable to what Gamble did, merely possessing a politically disfavored object, in this case a firearm. Another quick aside, some of you might remember Plaxico Burris. He was an NFL receiver. He did something stupid too. He took a legally registered firearm from another state and took it into New York, where it was not legal. He was dumb in that he, he had it like stuffed in his sweatpants. He dropped it and he accidentally shot himself. So he got caught. And he was sent to New York, not for discharge of the firearm in public, but for possessing the firearm. So Burr's case doesn't implicate double jeopardy or dual sovereign doctrine, but it is an example of the government incarcerating someone for mere possession of a politically disfavored object, which is what they're doing to Gamble here, but they're doing it to him twice. Then the Supreme Court goes on, and they, and they accurately describe how if an American is murdered overseas, that could be prosecuted by that foreign government and a U.S. court. Absolutely. So the court says, these examples reinforce the notion that a crime against two sovereigns constitutes two offenses because each sovereign has an interest to vindicate. That's correct. But the feds have to have a legitimate interest to vindicate, like counterfeiting or interstate kidnapping or assault on a federal agent. That's when the dual sovereignty doctrine is legit. But the federal usurpation of power beyond that constitutional limit is not. And that's the problem here. And that's why Gamble was punished twice illegitimately. Not because of the dual sovereignty doctrine, but because the federal government has no legitimate interest, constitutional authority to prosecute him for something that was entirely intrastate. Now, remember, the two, two dissents in this case, RBG and Gorsuch, want to throw out the dual sovereignty doctrine, and they address at least one of those arguments. This is the majority talking about the dissents. The dissents contend that our dual sovereignty rule errs in treating the federal and state governments as two separate sovereigns, when in fact sovereignty belongs to the people. This argument is based on a non sequitur which seems to be kind of an insult, right, between justices there. But they go on. Our Constitution rests on the principle that the people are sovereign, but that does not mean that they have conferred all the attributes of sovereignty on a single government. Instead, the people, by adopting the Constitution, split the atom of sovereignty. They go on. The Constitution limited, but did not abolish the sovereign powers of the states, which retained a residuary and inviolable sovereignty. And there they cite Federalist number 39 there. They go on, thus, both the federal government and the states wield sovereign powers, and that is why our system of government is said to be one of dual sovereignty. 
They go on. The United States is a federal republic. It is not, contrary to Justice Gorsuch's suggestion in his dissent, a unitary state like the United Kingdom. The majority is correct on that. And they go on. The majority goes on. Our federal system advances individual liberty in many ways. Among other things, it limits the powers of the federal government. And that's where I want to stop and laugh. It's supposed to limit the powers of the federal government. The federal government was limited until the Supreme Court decided Wickard, and that's the rub. The majority goes on. But because the powers of the federal government and the states often overlap, allowing both to regulate often results in two layers of regulation. That is a correct statement, but they overlap far too much and far more than is legitimate pursuant to the Constitution. The Supreme Court doesn't make much of Gamble's historical arguments, and I think they're correct. The majority discusses stare decisis. Remember, because Gamble wants them to overturn precedent upholding this dual sovereignty notion. And about that, the majority says, stare decisis promotes the even-handed, predictable, and consistent development of legal principles, fosters reliance on judicial decisions, and contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the judicial process. All that's absolutely correct, but of course, and Thomas agrees to this part of the opinion, even though he wrote that 5-4 majority decision from the Hyatt case we discussed last week in episode 44, where they did decide to overturn that precedent. So they will do it, and the reasons for doing it and not doing it are discussed more in, in the Hyatt episode 44. But here, the majority goes on, as noted, Gamble's historical arguments must overcome numerous major decisions of this court spanning 170 years. So that's the precedent, how far it goes back. In light of these factors, Gamble's historical evidence must, at a minimum, be better than middling. And it is not. The English cases are a muddle. Treatises offer spotty support. An early state and federal cases are by turns equivocal and downright harmful to Gamble's position. All told, this evidence does not establish that those who ratified the Fifth Amendment took it to bar successive prosecutions under different sovereigns' laws, much less to do so with enough force to break a chain of precedent, linking dozens of cases over 170 years. And all that makes sense. The court then really gets into the weeds about Gamble's argument. The history of the English common law it goes back into the 1500s and English common law, and ultimately the Supreme Court is not impressed, and I agree with them. Again, the issue is as Thomas described it in his concurrence. So this is Thomas writing separately. He agrees with the outcome, but he wants to make this point, among some others. But this one is especially important as far as I'm concerned. He writes, Thomas, in his concurrence, the founding generation foresaw very limited potential for overlapping criminal prosecutions by the states and the federal government. The founders, therefore, had no reason to address the double jeopardy question that the court resolves today. Given their understanding, the founders' understanding, of Congress' limited criminal jurisdiction and the absence of an analogous dual sovereign system in England, it is difficult to conclude that the people who ratified the Fifth Amendment understood it to prohibit prosecution by a state and the federal government for the same offense. So he agrees with the outcome. But he's saying and pointing out that the problem here is the expansion of federal authority far beyond what the founders would have considered legitimate. They would have considered completely illegitimate. And that's the problem. And Thomas is correct in that. So back to Alito and the 7-2 majority and another insult that they make towards Gamble's argument. They say, Gamble's next argument is based on treatises, but they are not nearly as helpful as he claims. Alone, they do not come close to settling the historical question with enough force to meet Gamble's particular burden under stare decisis. Gamble begins with Blackstone, which is a famous and respected old legal treatise. So he begins with Blackstone, but he reads volumes into a fly speck. That's about as clever as you'll see a Supreme Court opinion be, in an insult anyway. Then they reject another argument like this, quote, When we turn from the 19th century treatises to 19th century state cases, Gamble's argument appears no stronger. The last time we looked, 
we found those state cases to be inconclusive. And saying the last time we looked seems a bit snarky for a Supreme Court opinion, in, in my view. And I'm all in favor of accessible prose written in common language, but that comment seems unnecessary. It's like I think of a 1980s John Hughes movie or something. You probably have seen The Breakfast Club. I can see Judd Nelson's character saying to Emilio Estevez's character, last time I checked, bud. But saying it there seems appropriate. Saying it in a Supreme Court opinion seems out of place. But they did not ask me. Then, after rejecting some more of Gamble's arguments, correctly, I believe, and they get to what I see, and so does Clarence Thomas, as a very important point. Quote, if incorporation, which Gamble argued and the Supreme Court rejected, is the doctrinal shift that Gamble invokes to justify a departure from precedent, here we go, this is the important part, the practical change he cites is the proliferation of federal criminal law. Gamble says that the resulting overlap of federal and criminal codes heightens the risk of successive prosecutions under state and federal law for the same criminal conduct. Absolutely right. The court goes on. Insofar as the expansion of the reach of federal criminal law has been questioned on constitutional rather than policy grounds, the argument has focused on whether Congress has overstepped its legislative powers under the Constitution. So they point out the the real problem. And they properly frame it, Congress overstepping its legislative powers under the Constitution. But that's not what's before them. And the majority here in the Gamble case cite Thomas's dissent in the Gonzalez v. Reich case, which I mentioned as episode 30, for that proposition about Congress overstepping its legitimate constitutional authority. And Reich, which based, which is based on Wickard and follows from Wickard, held that two old sick ladies who were growing legal medicinal marijuana in California, under California law, they could still be prosecuted under federal law because their growing and consumption affected interstate commerce. Again, it's laughable. It's not interstate, and it's not commerce. They're growing it, and they're consuming it in one spot. So that's what Wickard has wrought. It has wrought a laughable conclusion and eviscerates the Constitution, but look more to episode 30 where we discuss that Gonzalez v. Reich case. So in conclusion here for Gamble, the feds had the legitimate constitutional authority under this dual sovereign doctrine to punish Terrence Gamble for the exact same thing the state of Alabama punished him for. And that's all this case can say. They say it correctly. The feds do not, however, have the legitimate constitutional power to make intrastate possession of an object a federal crime. The problem is Wickard and the evisceration of the enumerated powers listed in Article 1, Section 8. Problem isn't the dual sovereign doctrine. The majority is correct in this 2019 case. The Supreme Court was not correct in 1942 in Wickard. So like a crack in a dam that eventually takes the whole thing down, the decision in Wickard has almost done the same to the Constitution. It's very close to doing it. It definitely took Terrence Gamble down here in federal court. I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 45, Gamble versus the United States. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Follow me on Twitter. Hit me up there at TheLawDKW and Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. And until next week, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.